0: Eve was not yet in existence. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It's all about food. Let me read to you. If you have your Bibles with you, you can follow me. And on the screen, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This command was given to Adam first before Eve was created. Now I want to pay attention to the specifics of this command. It says you shall not eat because you shall surely die. There's this one tree that's forbidden that if they eat, they will surely die. But what's interesting is that since Eve was not around when this command was given to Adam, something must have happened between Adam to Eve when Adam was passing along his commandment of God. Because you see, when you flip the page in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent slithered around and tried to scam Eve, Adam and Eve, Eve told something that is not too far from what Adam was told, but there was something different. different. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, Eve was talking to the serpent, and she said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I mean, God did not say, don't touch it. God just said to Adam, thou shalt not eat. So, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're not good at passing information. We know this, right? We're not good at passing information. We either add or subtract by way of interpretation. And I'm guessing that Eve right here used a very scientific method of interpretation called exaggeration. (laughs) We're good at this. Or maybe Adam was trying to be careful, so he emphasized by saying, do not touch, or even do not touch. Who knows? The Bible did not say. The specific command was not to eat from the fruit, or else you shall die. There's something about touching and eating the food that is sacred. When God gave them the rule not to eat from the tree, God did not care to explain. What is clear is that they can eat everything in the garden except this tree. Now, there was no rule about looking, inspecting, going around, strolling around the tree. The only command was not to eat of the fruit of the tree. But the simple rule of making a distinction between what, is, what can be eaten and what cannot be eaten... Determines their residence in the garden That means on this simple rule Hangs their privilege To stay in the garden On this simple rule By making distinction of what's kosher and what's not Determines if they will stay In the garden of Eden And the moment they ate of the fruit They were considered dead Unclean and unfit To stay in the garden of Eden In the presence of God The Bible was very specific. You see, the moment you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. But the Bible also tells us in Genesis chapter five that Adam lived for about 930 years. He did not immediately die. He had other sons and other daughters. He lived up to 930 years before he died. So that means death really is not the absence of heartbeat. Death really in the context of Genesis chapter three to be driven away from the presence of god to be away from the garden to be away from the tree of life to be away from the god who breathed life into adam that is death see unclean things cannot stay in the garden so death in adam and eve cannot stay in the garden so they had to be banished away from the garden of eden away from the tree of life now fast forward to the book of leviticus most brought the israelites from egypt we know the story Every year we have the Ten Commandments. Now they're in the wilderness, halfway to the promised land, and guess what? God wants to bring back the Garden of Eden, the taste of Eden in the desert. God wants them, God wants them to bring, God wants to bring them to the promised land. That's the new Eden. But halfway in the wilderness, God wants them to have a taste of what it means to be in the presence of God. And so what God said. Build me a mishkan, a tabernacle, and I will dwell among you. The dwelling of God, the presence of God, in the midst of the people of Israel, in the wilderness, is like Eden. Going back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. But there's only one catch. Because God is holy, God commands the people of Israel to be holy. And that means to be holy in everything that they do. That's why we have the book of Leviticus. But how can they be holy? Let me read to you about the law, about food. Let me start with verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Now this sounds like the Garden of Eden all over again. Because when God started the Garden of Eden, He told them what to eat and what not to eat. Now they're in the wilderness. God is about to dwell in their presence. God's telling them, this is the law of what you can eat and what not to eat. And what's interesting is that God arbitrarily gave them a command like a boss. He did not explain why Don't you why you cannot eat this food, but why you can eat other food. There was no further explanation. Just don't eat this food. You can eat this food. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 46 and 47 God gives them a category, a way to work on what to eat and what not to eat. Verse 46 says, This is the law about the beast and the bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make distinction between the unclean and the clean. That's the first category. The clean and the unclean. Between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. If it's clean and it's living, they can eat. If it's unclean and it's dead, they cannot eat. That's very, that's very important. The Jews calls it kosher. Ever heard of that one? Kosher. Kosher is a designation of what food can be eaten and what food cannot be eaten. Now let me be clear to this before it gets boring. The rule on what to eat and what not to eat reflects our posture of obedience to God. Especially to the Israelites. So when God says it's clean, we eat. When God says it's unclean, we don't eat. The principle is God's house, His rules. His house, His rules. Now there are certain things that we accept when we visit a house or attend parties. We abide by the rules. If it's wedding, you don't come in flip-flops, right? You come a little bit formal. You come with black shoes or... Something formal with that When you're invited to a house If the rule is to Remove your slippers or your shoes Have them outside the house You abide by the rules Again, their house, their rules So in the wilderness When the Spirit of God came and rested on the tabernacle It will be God's house God's rules Okay, since we're going to talk about food I'm going to go straight to Asia's number one meat Pork that's why I asked for bacon. Leviticus 11, 7 and 8. I'm just a messenger. Do not shoot the messenger. Okay? Verse 7. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the God, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Okay, Relax. Settle down. Now God mentioned some criteria, split food, cloven food, and chew the card. Now bad juice, the pig did make the cut. It is unclean. So goodbye, Ramen katsu. Goodbye, Bacon. Do you hate me now? I can see some angry faces right all right, let me move on before this. I get into trouble. You know what? When I was praying for this, I'm thinking about it at the, at the back of my mind. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. I don't have a choice. This is the Word of God. And it says it is unclean. I did not invent this. You can find this in your Bible. Leviticus 11.10 But anything in the seas or the rivers that doesn't have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. That means anything on the sea or rivers, no fins, no scales, unclean. There goes the lobsters, the shrimps, the squids, the clams, the oysters, the scallops. Even the famous Japanese onagi is out of the table. Anything that swims without fins and scales are called unfit for eating. That goes also for seaweed and seahorse. Alright, Relax. Verse 13. And this you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short eared owl, the barn owl, the toddy owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, heron of any kind, the hoopie, and the bat. This is good news. The chicken is not on the list. (laughs) Yes. Chicken is not on the list. Yes. I'm going to skip the insects because you don't eat insects. I'm going to go with the last category. Verse 42. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat for they are detestable. Look at me. No alligators, no snakes, no amphibians, no turtles, no escargot. Relax, I'm just a messenger, okay? Now before you walk away, let me explain this. I mean, I hate this pastor. Now what am I going to eat now? Let me explain. This category of clean and unclean animal does not refer to our moral status with God. Let me say that again. This category of clean and unclean animals does not refer to our moral status with God. This means this category of clean and unclean animals is in the category of what is fit and unfit for eating. It has nothing to do with sin. It doesn't make you sinful. The discussion has nothing to do with repentance and forgiveness. When you eat, you're not made sinful. It has nothing to do with your moral status with God. It has something to do with us with what is fit and unfit for eating. See, all you have to do when you eat unclean food is to wait until evening, wash your hands, and you become clean again. It has nothing to do with your moral standing before God. It's simply about eating what is fit for consumption. Are we clear? Yes. Yes. That's a good one. (laughs) If I'm going to contemporize this, we can add to your list the things that are unfit to eat now. Your high fructose corn syrup that you put in your pancake, the farm-raised salmon containing PCBs, the aspartame in your diet sodas and sweeteners, the maltodextrins in your Cheetos, and the acrylamide in your french fries. I, mean, I can go on and on with this one, but the point is that the food that is not fit for consumption, we put in our mouth, it's called unclean. It has nothing to do with sinning before God. But the principle stays the same. His house, his rules. Tell it to your neighbor. His house, his rules. Now chapter 11 is not a complete list of clean and unclean animals because not all species are found in the Middle East. But there's another category that I want you to consider. Verse 8. It's not just about what you can eat or what you cannot eat. It's also about what you can touch. Verse 8, You shall not eat of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Verse 24, Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean. Verse 36, Nevertheless, spring or cistern, holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass, they shall be unclean. Verse 39, If any animal which you may eat dies, Whoever touches its carcasses Shall be unclean until the evening Food that is clean When they die naturally They become unclean You cannot touch it You become unclean There's something about the death of the clean animals That makes them unclean It all points back to Genesis chapter 3 When Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord And therefore God said You shall surely die When they died They became unclean The dead animals, the carcass of a dead animal cannot be touched because it's going to make you unclean. It's a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. but they were banished from the garden, they became unclean, unfit to live in the presence of God. The reason was given to us in verse 45. This is the reason. If there's anything that you want to remember in this sermon, it is this. In verses 44 and 45. It says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls around the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God, and you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Twice it's mentioned that God is holy, and the Israelites are supposed to be holy as well. One of the most misunderstood words in the Bible is the word holy. What does it mean? Every time I hear about this word used by people outside the church, four out of five, they always misinterpret these words. Even in the church, people inside the church who have been you've been attending for many years are still perplexed as to what this word really means. What does holy <coughs> means? We tend to read this word side by side with the words saints and sinless, but that's not true. Because in the Bible, in the context of Leviticus chapter 11, the word holy in Hebrew is kadosh. Kadosh means consecrated, separated, set apart, devoted, dedicated. Technically, it has nothing to do with sinless perfection. It has something to do with being set apart for a certain use, devoted for something. Have you ever heard of the word bespoke? Yes? If you're you know, if, if you're very particular about your clothing, bespoke. See, every time I hear this word, bespoke, I always think about James Bond. James Bond, everything about him is bespoke, tailor-made, custom-made. From his clothes to his wash, to his shoes, to his cars, even to the way he introduces himself. My name's Bond, James Bond. Have <laughs> you ever heard of anyone say that? Hey, what's your name? My name's Bond. No, my name's, my name's Bon, James Cabo. No, you don't, you don't hear that. You only hear James Bond. Even the way he orders his drink, shaken out stirred. I mean, this is bespoke, custom made for him. When you hear the word holy, just think about bespoke. Israel is bespoke to God, custom made for God. In fact, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. God has taken the Israelites out from slavery and bespoke them, custom made them for him. That's why what they eat will, will become their bespoke, their identity among all the people of the world. All the nations of the world will know that they are bespoke to God by what they eat. Their diet is bespoke. Here's why. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 24 to 26 He said, I am the Lord your God Who will separate you, separated you from the peoples You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean And the unclean bird from the clean You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird Or anything with which the ground crawls Which I have set apart for you to hold unclean Again you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord. I am holy, and have separated you from all the peoples that you should be mine. The nation of Israel is bespoke to God, custom made for God, tailor fit for God Himself. So the question is: If this is true to the Israelites, what about you and I? Are we also bespoke to God? Have we been called to be unique for God's use? Are we commanded as followers of Jesus to also be holy because God is holy? Amen to that. Listen to Apostle Peter talk about the churches scattered all over Asia. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy and also be holy in your conduct. In fact, it doesn't stop there. He quotes from Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What this means is that we are also called to be holy as God is holy. But does it mean that I'm also required not to eat the unclean food? You see, this book of Leviticus is part of a bigger covenant of Israel with God. Their covenant is not the same as our covenant. But we are called just the same, to be holy just as God is holy. So I'm saying, to a certain degree, we become what we eat. The question is, what do we eat? In Leviticus, the Garden of Eden is the tabernacle. And everything inside the tabernacle resembles the Garden of Eden. If you go home and read the book of Genesis, beginning from chapter 1, chapter 2, Every time there's a description of the Garden of Eden and you compare it to the book of Leviticus where, where the temple is described, they have the same instructions and artifacts inside. What's inside the temple is the menorah. It, it represents a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. We have the golden table that has the presence or the bread of presence. We have the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And in the curtain, the word cherubim, that's guarding from the holy place to the most holy place. And inside the most holy place, you have the Ark of the Covenant. Everything inside the temple represents the Garden of Eden. If it looks like the Garden of Eden, fast forward to the time of Jesus. The Bible said, when Jesus breathed his last, the curtain in the temple was torn into two. This thick curtain has the cherubim. The cherubim are the one guarding the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. But when it was torn into two, the empty room was exposed. There was nothing inside the most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. Why? Because in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian king took away the Ark of the Covenant. It was not returned when the temple was reconstructed by the Jews. It was empty. Which means God is not in the place. It's just a symbol. It's an empty room. It has become an ancestral house. It is God's house, but the owner is not there. Nevertheless, Jesus calls this temple my father's house. Now, you've got to pay attention to what Jesus said in the early portion of John. He calls this temple to be my father's house. And yet, this father's house is empty. So one day, in John chapter 2, Jesus went to the temple. He went to the temple towards those people who are offering and managing animal sacrifices. And he stopped animal sacrifices. And so the people reacted by saying, why are you stopping us? Who are you? What's your credential? Are you a prophet? Tell us. What right do you have to stop the animal sacrifices? Because in the minds of the Israelites or the Jews, only God can accept or reject the sacrifices. And what Jesus was doing was effectively stopping by rejecting or accepting the animal sacrifices. So the question is legitimate. Who are you? What right do you have to stop the animal sacrifices? And instead of replying by giving the reason, Jesus Replied differently in chapter 2, verse 19. This is what Jesus said Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. It's kind of strange for an answer. Now, listen the temple is where you find the presence of God. This is like the Garden of Eden, this is like the tabernacle. What Jesus seems to be suggesting is that God is not anymore in this place. What Jesus seems to be suggesting is that there's a new place. For the presence of god there's a new address there's a new eden but the jews did not get it so the jews said in verse 20 and 21 it has taken four to six years to build a temple and you will raise it up in three days that's ridiculous how are you going to do it but then john was very quick to add this in verse 21 he said but he was speaking about the temple of his body what does it mean but this means that jesus is trying to tell the jews That God's presence now does not reside in buildings, but in a person. Jesus' body is the temple of God. What he's saying is that God changed his home address and they missed it. You may not realize this, but if a person sins in the Old Testament, one has to go to the temple, offer sacrifices, and ask for forgiveness. Only in the temple with proper sacrifices. But what's interesting is that when Jesus was ministering, he was forgiving people left and right. Remember, he went to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus lives in Jericho. Jericho is 17 miles away from Jerusalem. Zacchaeus did not have to go to the temple offer sacrifice. Jesus gave him forgiveness. The woman caught in adultery, John chapter 8, was in the temple grounds. The Pharisees said, stone this woman. Shall we stone this woman? Because she committed adultery. Jesus said, nah. And Jesus forgave her. She did not have to go inside the temple, offer sacrifice, ask forgiveness. Jesus immediately asked forgiveness. I do not condemn you. Sin no more. The Same thing with the man, the paralytic. Matthew chapter 9. This guy was a paralytic. From head to toe, he was paralytic. Instead of saying, be healed, Jesus said, You are forgiven. This guy didn't have to go to the temple offer sacrifices. Jesus can forgive. So what does this tell us? If God can only forgive and Jesus is able to forgive, that makes us think that Jesus is more than just a teacher. Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's God himself in the flesh because he's able to forgive. Amen to that. What this means is that whenever you encounter Jesus, you encounter God. Whenever you see Jesus face to face, you see God face to face. Now think with me now. I know this is about food. Let's go back to Genesis. See, if God did not assign, so there are two trees in the Garden of Eden. One is the forbidden tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's another tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. The moment they ate of the fruit, they were banished from the garden. Think about it. If God did not assign a cherubim with flaming sword on the east side of the gate, Adam and Eve could have sneaked back, took the fruit from the tree of life, and solved their problem of death. They could have stayed in the garden for good. But because of the cherubim, they remained dead, unfit, unclean, outside the Garden of Eden. So what is it, this about food? If Jesus understood the implication that we become what we eat, then Jesus would have offered something more, something more than forgiveness, something more than healing, something more than material blessing. If Jesus understood that the ultimate problem of man is death, he would have offered life, the cure for death. See, a lot of people today are so confused as to What's the mission of Jesus? What's, what, what really can I ask from, from Jesus? What does He offer? Other people are just contented with, just bless me materially, I'm good. Other people are just, just heal me, I'm good. Other people are just, just make me happy, I'm good. But really, what is Jesus' role and mission? What is His ultimate mission? The ultimate mission of Jesus is to cure death. Because that's the real problem from the very beginning. If he is really, if we really understood that we become what we eat, then Jesus would have offered something, a food that brings life, food that stops death. Now think about it this way Why was the last meal of Jesus so special? Why did Jesus break the bread and say, This bread is my body? Now remember they were having a Passover meal. The center of the Passover meal was the Passover lamb. Jesus could have said, I'm going to get a leg, and he would probably say, this leg is my body. But he did not do that. He took the bread and break it, and he said, this bread is my body. Why did he do that? Because back in John chapter 2, Jesus claims to be the new temple of God. Inside the temple, There is the special bread for the priests called the bread of presence. Only the priests can eat this bread. Literally, when you go to the Hebrew, it says bread of the face or (inaudible) lehem hapanim. Bread of the face or bread of the, the presence. Let me read to you Hebrews 9, 1 and 2. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, we talk about holy place, in which were the lampstand, that's the menorah, and the table, that's the golden table, and the bread of presence. Inside the holy place is what we call the bread of presence, actual bread, real bread. But in Jewish understanding, this bread symbolizes the invisible face of God. To see this bread is to see the face of God. To eat this bread inside the temple is to see God face to face. When Jesus broke the bread and distributed to his disciples, he was trying to say, I am the new bread. If you eat my body, my, this bread, you see God face to face. Because I am God. And to eat this bread in the very presence of God is to have the most intimate fellowship with God. See, Jesus wasn't just offering a kosher bread, clean bread. He was offering more than a kosher bread. He was offering his body. It just doesn't make you clean. It makes you live. Because this bread is the antidote to death. Jesus made it abundantly clear that you become what you eat. You see, clean food makes you clean. Unclean food makes you unclean. But it stops there. Clean food doesn't make you more spiritual. Unclean food doesn't make you a sinner. Food goes into your (laughs) tummy and eventually it goes out of your body. It doesn't make you more righteous or more of a sinner. So to eat the body of Jesus goes way beyond ritual cleansing. Jesus is offering something more. Something that makes you fully clean inside. The body of Jesus is what cancels the curse. It is what brings forgiveness. It is what initiates new life to us. Do you see it? Our real problem, really, is not how to be clean and how to stay clean by what we eat. Our real problem is to get rid of sin and death that really pollutes our body. Our problem is how to restore this broken relationship with God. So that it is true, we become what we eat when we eat this bread that Jesus is offering. If we become what we eat, beloved, Jesus is offering himself, his body. All we have to do is to eat. Accept Jesus. He's the true God who can forgive. He's the true God who can make us clean. There's something in us that is defiled, the way we think the way we act, the way we feel, the way we react, our whole lifestyle. But this bread that Jesus is offering his body is what really makes us truly clean. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the love of Jesus. We thank you for the offer that cures sin. We thank you for the solution and finally, death can be reversed the curse of Eden can be reversed that Jesus is the way to true holiness Father convict us allow us to understand that true uncleanness is not just physical true uncleanness is really what's coming from the heart one of your prophets say the heart's deceitful above all else who can understand it Father, clean our hearts, clean our thoughts, so that we can intimately have fellowship with you.